Hi, I'm Josh Van Berkel. Welcome to the Activate Christchurch podcast. It's our privilege to share it with you. I hope you enjoy it. And if you ever find yourself in Christchurch, pop in and say hello. We'd love to see you. Very good. Very good. All right, if you received uh, prayer this morning for something and you've given it a test out, and it feels like it is better than it was before you received prayer, just put your hand up so I can see. One, two, three, four, five. Ah, you're doing, you're doing all right over there, Jess? Yep, it's good. That's fantastic. At least we're all just sitting there like, oh, yeah. But like six or seven people said, I got prayer for something, and it's better now than it was before I got prayer. Is that worth an applause to God? Or There you go. And how many people that prayed for them feel like, actually, that clap should have been for me. I actually did all the work. Anyone think that? Yeah. (laughs) Right? There's God that does it through us. So, okay. (sighs) Everyone doing well? Yes? Happy to have the heaters working again? Yes? It's good, isn't it? All right. Who enjoyed last Sunday's message about giving and tithing and finances? That was a fun, challenging message, wasn't it? Yes, brave Josh decided to do it over camera for lounge churches, so I didn't have to look at your faces. But I I heard that there was some very robust conversations in the lounge churches, which is good. Somebody said to me once, and I think I read it somewhere, Judy, I think I read it, that Jesus talked more about money than he does about any other topic uh, in the New Testament, which is pretty crazy if it's true. Uh, and if it is true, and if it's not, he certainly talks about it a heck of a lot. But if it is true, then how many people know that if Jesus talked about it all the time, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about money in church. We should never be afraid to talk about what Jesus talked about. And so I was just thinking about it during the week. Uh, and I was thinking about you know money and finances and some of the stuff that Jesus says about money. And I stumbled across this really weird verse, which I have read, like no lie, like a hundred times, and I've never thought it was weird. But this week I thought it was weird. It's in Matthew chapter 6. Who remembers the story when he's talking to the disciples and the people following him about money? And he makes this statement. Oh, Caleb. He says, he says don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy it. Do you guys know the story? It says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And so he's very clearly talking about material possessions. He's not talking about some sort of spiritual truth, right? I don't have to worry about moths getting in and eating my spiritual fruit. That's not a thing. I don't have to worry about rust getting in and destroying my my spiritual character. You know, I don't say, well, I used to be a really patient guy, but then the moths ate it all. That's, you know, I I don't say, I used to have great character, but then it went rusty. Like, so Jesus is very clearly talking about material possessions and physical stuff. But then he says the weirdest thing. He says, don't store it up for yourselves down here. Now, notice he doesn't say, don't store it up, don't save, don't be smart with your money. He says, don't store it up for yourself. Like, actually, you can do a lot of good with money if you've got a generous spirit and an outward focus and an obedient heart. But if you're just hoarding it for yourself, that's not cool. He says, don't do that. He says, but what you should do is you should store it up in heaven. I've read that verse a hundred times and just glossed over it. But this week I went, wait a second, what? Wouldn't it make a lot more sense for Jesus to say, hey, 
don't worry about storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's heaven. It's the utopia. It's perfection. It's paradise. All your needs will be met in heaven. All your desires will be met in heaven. You won't need for nothing in heaven. The last thing I want you doing on earth is worrying about storing up stuff in heaven. I've got everything sorted. All your bases are covered. If he'd said that, I would have gone, yeah, that's what heaven's going to be like. But he says the opposite. He says, I actually want you intentionally storing up treasures in heaven, which leads to a whole bunch more questions like why, where, when, who, how. In fact, that's a great question. How? How do I do that, Jesus? You'll notice when you read the passage that everybody just nods and says good advice. No one says, excuse me, what the heck are you talking about? which is what I would have done if I were there. How many times are you in a big group of people, like you may be at a dinner party or something, and someone's talking about something, and you don't got a clue what they're talking about, but everyone else looks like they do. So you don't want to be the idiot that says, I don't understand this conversation. So you say nothing. And then it turns out afterwards, no one knew what was going on, but no one wanted to be that guy. I think that happens a lot in the Bible where Jesus says stuff and everyone sitting there goes, I don't have a clue what he's talking about, but I don't want to be the guy that says, what? So now we will have to read the Bible and go, what? How do you take material possessions, which he's clearly talking about, and then transfer it into a spiritual dimension where it lasts for eternity? How do you do that? Unsure. Actually, fortunately for you, Jesus explains this in Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at the rich young ruler and he identifies that this guy has a massive identity issue and that his whole identity is wrapped around his possessions. His whole identity is wrapped around what he owns and what he has. I mean, for goodness sake, he doesn't even have a name. He's literally called the rich young ruler. It's, it's who he is. And so Jesus identifies that and says, man, you've got a problem in that you, don't, you think you own all this stuff, but you don't. All this stuff owns you. And so he says, here's what I need you to do. Go and sell your possessions, take all the money that you get and give it to the poor. And then, he says, as a result of that, because of that, after that, and then you will have treasure in heaven. See, I don't know how theologically accurate this is. But many years ago, I decided to just adopt the mindset that any time I act in obedience to Jesus when it comes to giving, I'm not just giving money to where God's told me to give it. I'm actually transferring that into my heavenly account. Because Jesus said, if you sell your stuff, take the money, give it to the poor, that's actually how you transfer it into your kingdom account. That's kind of weird, isn't it? not what I want to talk about this morning, but what I do want to talk about is only going to take like 10 minutes, so I had to pet it with some stuff at the start. Actually, another thing he says is that right at the end of that passage, after explaining everything to the disciples and making a very complicated reference about camels and needles and fitting through things, which people still do not understand, I've heard all sorts of bizarre explanations for that verse, including, well, there was a gate called a camel or a needle, and anyway... I digress. At the end of it all, he says this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
See, we understand the reverse of that. We understand that where our heart is, that's where our treasure goes. I've said many times, and it's true for me as well, you take any one of our bank statements, go through where we spend our money, and I can tell you what's important to you because we always put our money where our heart is. We had uh, Liz's uh, niece come around last week with her boyfriend. They're like 19 years old, 20 years old. And her boyfriend starts telling me about this car that he's bought. I am not a car guy. Really, not a car guy. I'm vaguely aware that I need to use them, and they cost me like $2,000 a week to run now, but I'm not overly a car guy. And so he said, I've just bought a... It was a, a Skyline. Is that a car? A, a, a Toyota Skyline. Is that right? No? Nissan Skyline? Okay. He said, I bought a Nissan Skyline. And then, and then he starts telling me about how, oh, it's, I'm going to get it a sick paint job. I said, is it not painted now? He said, oh, it's painted now, but I'm going to get a better one. And then he said, and then I'm saving up. I'm going to get some new wheels. I said, has it not got wheels? He said, no, nah, but I want, I want better ones. I said, what, are your current ones like triangles or something? Like, what's wrong with them? Is nothing wrong? And then he said, then I'm going to get it lowered. I said, what's wrong with it now? He says, too high. He said, I'm going to get it lowered. And then his girlfriend, she said, oh, but when he gets it lowered, he can't pick people up from the airport because of the jutter bars. He said, I can. I just have to drive on a 45-degree angle at like 10 kilometers an hour over each jutter bar. Like, what is this guy's deal? How many people know that he's got a heart for cars because that's where his money's going? I, I don't have a heart for cars. I can't think of anything dumber than taking a car and lowering it. It's crazy, right? So we understand that we put our money where our heart is, but Jesus said, actually, you can do it backwards. You can take your money and put it somewhere, and then your heart will follow it. So if you have got, uh, you know, if you say, hey, look, I need more of a heart for this, or I'd love to have a heart for that, or I'd love to have a heart for the church, or I'd love to have a heart for homeless people, or whatever it might be, can I encourage you, just put some money into it and see what happens. Uh, I remember a story many years ago, I was in church, and uh, it was actually my brother-in-law, John, and he and a bunch of guys from our old church were going to Romania. Do you remember this? For a missions trip, missions trip to Romania. And so they were going to visit orphanages and things. And I would have been early 20s, maybe 21, 22. I had a job. I worked full time. I was very proud of myself. And uh, they would get up every Sunday morning and they'd say, hey, guys, we're going to Romania in six weeks, five weeks, four, three weeks to go to Romania. And we're going to be doing a sausage sizzle after church to raise money. And, and we're going to be doing this. And if anyone wants to give money, it's going to be great. It's going to go to a great cause. And then during the week, I'd catch up with John and he'd be like, mate, it's going to be so awesome because on the way we're going to the UK and we're going to do all this cool stuff and we're going to do all this tourist stuff and we're going to go to the theme parks. And I was like, what the heck? Like... I do. I am not okay with this. This sounds like you're having far too much fun on this missions trip. Missions trip are supposed to suck. You can't go to all this stuff. And so I got a bit of an attitude, and I'd sit in church on Sunday, and they'd get up and they'd say, we need money for the orphans. And I'd be like, you're just going to take my money and spend it on junk food at Disney World or wherever it is you're going. And so I had an attitude. And so every time they decided to ask for money, I was like, nope, nope. And one day on the air, and uh, they asked for money a couple of weeks to go, and God says, I would like you to give them some money. And I said, have you not been paying attention, man? That's, that's, it's, it's not a missions trip, it's a holiday with an orphanage thrown in. 
And he said, no. He said, I want you to give them some money. I said, well, how much do you want me to give? He said, I want you to give a week's pay. I said, no. He said, what are you going to spend it on? I said, stuff. He said, a week's pay. I said, fine. So I gave a week's pay. And then the weirdest thing happened. The next week they got up and they're like, we're going to be doing this. And I was like, you know, actually, that sounds awesome. I hadn't heard. I'm sure you haven't said that before. And then they went away and they were sending back emails about what they were doing. And I was just so interested, so excited. Then they came back. I was like, tell me about it. Tell me what happened. Tell me what was going on. It completely changed my whole heart just by investing money into it, right? So Jesus said, where you put your treasure, there your heart goes also. And he says that in the context of just telling a young guy, hey, give your money away and then you'll have treasures in heaven because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me tell you something. We have got such a temporal mindset when it comes to finances, even when it comes to this life. Like we get so bogged down and like, well, I've got to have enough money for retirement and I've got to get my mortgage paid off and I've got to get my house sorted. And like in the scheme of eternity, really, does it matter? So I think the encouragement in that space is, is for all of us to just have more of an eternal mindset when it comes to our resources and our finances, asking Jesus all the time, what can we do with it? So I just want to encourage you in that. If you're someone that finds it difficult to trust God with money, and look, I get it. I'm married. I've got three kids. I've got a mortgage. You know, petrol costs whatever. It is harder sometimes. I'm not pretending that, oh, I've got no issue with it. Sometimes it's a challenge. But like I said in the video, you make a decision to be a generous person and you go for it. All right, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 5. This is not going to take long at all. Uh, If you're a guest with us this morning, we've got the reference on the screen, but not the Scriptures, because I've got this weird idea that we should bring our Bibles to church and read them uh, in a church service. Uh, And I don't want to spoon-feed people stuff, so... Don't panic if you're a guest and you haven't brought one because I'm about to read it out. And it's only four or four verses. But in future, bring your Bibles to church and then you can follow along. What I want to do this morning really quickly in, in 10 minutes or so is I just want to compare two people. Two people with two different attitudes, two different mindsets, two different hearts, two different lives, and two different results. And then I'm just going to ask a question at the end. And it's been interesting, actually, to see what Holy Spirit has done throughout the service already this morning. Uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 12. We are working our way through the book of Acts, and this is where we're up to. It says this, the apostles, I'm reading out of the NIV, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. That's an interesting turn of phrase. All the believers used to meet together. The NIV puts it this way, some of the other translations don't, but it it almost reads as if Luke is writing this, which he obviously wrote many years after the events took place, but as he's writing it, this doesn't happen anymore. Like the believers used to meet. We all understand that if I say, I used to play soccer, then you know, well, that means he doesn't play soccer anymore. Like I used to be in good shape. You understand what? That means. So they used to meet together. Uh, And so even though we make a a big deal out about the early church and how amazing the early church was, it was really only in that initial space for a couple of decades. And then it started to change pretty quick. It says this in verse 13 No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. I don't want to make a big deal out of it, but I don't know if you noticed, there's quite a big contradiction there. In verse 13, it says that no one dared join them, 
And then in verse 14, it says, but a lot of people joined them. So what's the Bible talking about here? When you see something like that in the Bible, I just want to encourage you to not just carry on reading and go, well, other people will worry about that. Like as Christians, as a rule, you guys are different, but as a rule, Christians are pretty useless at actually being able to give good answers to the questions that the world asks. And it is not helpful when someone says, well, what about this? If you just say, well, I just believe it, that's all. That's what faith is. Faith is, just, faith is not stupid. Like, faith is not ignorant. Faith is not just like, la, 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 la. Like, faith actually can handle the world asking questions. And so when you read something like that in your Bible, go, actually, that's, I don't understand that. I would like to understand that. Why does the Bible say no one else dared join them and then say, but a lot of people joined them? Well, actually, the book of Acts was written in Greek, and it was also translated very early on into Aramaic. And so we have it in English. A lot of our English translations are taken from the Greek, but some take their translations from the Aramaic. So the Passion Translation, for example, takes this passage from the Aramaic because the Aramaic says that no one dared harm them because they were highly regarded by the people. And more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number, which makes a lot more sense in the context of those other two verses, doesn't it? So maybe, maybe it's just a little wee Greek, Aramaic, English crossover. Like I say, don't want to make a big deal out of it, but if you read something like that, try and work out why it's there. Verse 15, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. The King James Version says that at least Peter's shadow might overshadow them. That word overshadow is far more than just a physical shadow. When we read it in the English, we just think, oh, he's walking past on a sunny day and the sun is falling, which you kind of go, okay, but that kind of sucks for everybody on the other side of the road. Like you'd have to go, well, which direction is he coming from? Where is the sun? What if he goes out on a cloudy day? Everyone's like, ah, oh, I didn't get healed today. Why not? Because it rained. Like that's a lame reason to miss out on a healing that you've been waiting for your whole life. It doesn't actually mean a physical shadow. It means that his, his essence would overshadow them. It's used a couple of other times in the New Testament. It's used to describe what happens to Mary when the Holy Spirit comes upon her and she conceives Jesus Christ. It says the Holy Spirit came and overshadowed her, overshadowed her, and she conceived. So this power came upon her and a miracle took place in her body. It's also used to describe what happens up the top of the mountain. Who remembers the story where Jesus goes up to the top of the mountain with Peter and James and John, and then Moses and Elijah appear? And Peter, being Peter, just kind of loses his mind and starts rabbiting on about, we should build houses for you guys so you can live here. It's like, mate, what are you talking about? They've just stepped out of, out of nothing into your reality. Like they don't need houses. But it says after he said that, it said a cloud came and overshadowed them, that same word, and God spoke out of the cloud and said, this is my son, you know, follow him. So again, it's, it's talking about this incredible spiritual power, this presence. And so when it says that Peter's shadow had fallen them, it's not talking about a physical shadow. It's talking about this, you know, for, for lack of a better word, because the new age has kind of taken a lot of our concepts and then appropriated them, but it's like his aura almost. And again, we're going, oh, aura, new age. No, actually this idea that we're spiritual beings that can actually affect physical realities as we move around is a Christian concept. 
that we see happen all the time in the Bible. And so he had just this, this presence, this power inside of him that as he walked past people, it would fall on them and they would be healed. And then we pick up the last verse in 16. says, Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. What we have here in these four verses essentially is the high watermark of the early church. This is like the top of the mountain. This is their peak experience. Because if you've got your Bibles, you'll notice that the very next section is called the Apostles Persecuted. And from this point, everything starts to go downhill as far as their standing in the community, as far as how the authorities see them. In fact, from this point on, everything starts to turn to custard. Something to notice is that when you're doing the right thing, persecution very often follows. What's confusing about persecution is that often it follows when you're doing the wrong thing. And so sometimes it can be hard to work out which one it is. The other thing about persecution too, just for you to think about, is what is the goal of persecution? You know, we, we experience persecution when we're doing the right thing, living for God, saying the right stuff. Life still gets messy because we have an enemy whose sole agenda is to destroy us and to destroy our relationship with Jesus Christ, to make us as ineffective as possible. So the goal of persecution from the enemy's perspective is to take you out, to make you ineffective, to abort your relationship with God and to cut you off at the knees. That's, that's his goal. Now, in the other parts of the world, like in oppressed nations like China and stuff, the, the persecution is very overt. And it's all about making it as difficult as possible and as uncomfortable as possible for people to do Christian life. They get arrested, they get thrown in jail, they get tortured, all that kind of stuff. And the goal is to cut them off at the knees. In our nation, and in the nation on the west side of the world, same goal, completely different approach. The enemy's goal is to abort your relationship with Jesus Christ and make you ineffective. And he does it not by making your life as uncomfortable as possible, but by making it as comfortable as possible. The enemy is not worried about whether you're comfortable or not. He'd much rather have you comfortable and cozy and warm and snug and happy and doing nothing for God and have no relationship with him than the other way around, that's for sure. The, the persecution that we face is apathy and pride and what was the other word that came up in your word? Unbelief, that's right. But the end result is the same. So don't think, oh, well, you know, we're so lucky, we're not getting persecuted. If you're not connecting with God and you've got all this other stuff going on, all these distractions, then maybe you are being persecuted just in a different way. Anyway, two people that I want to compare. The first person is Ananias from last week. Ananias represents what it looks like to hold back from God, to not give God all that we have. And Peter, in this passage, represents someone who does the opposite, holds back nothing from God, gives God everything that he has. Let's just look at Peter for a second. I mean, Peter is a nobody. He's one of the guys that it talked about in Acts chapter 4 when it says they realized that they were unskilled and ordinary men. It was Peter and John they were talking about. Peter's the guy that three times said, I don't know Jesus, he's not my friend, i got nothing to do with him, don't include me with his group, We're not, we don't know each other. It's pretty brutal. Peter's the guy that got so um, concerned about life that he ended up partnering with the devil 
and communicating the heart that the enemy wanted communicated, that Jesus had to look at him and say, hey, you're, you're not actually speaking out of your own heart. You're speaking out of the devil's heart. So get behind me, Satan. It's a rebuke that Jesus gave directly to Peter. Peter's the guy that saw the wind and the waves and got so afraid that he started to sink and Jesus had to reach down and pull him out of the water. There's nothing special about Peter. Constantly putting his foot in it, constantly saying the wrong thing. If you watch The Chosen, he's also the coolest disciple by far. Because he just wears his heart on his sleeve. He just says what he thinks. Somehow, this guy, with no real ability, no real skill, no real education, no real training, constantly making mistakes, ends up becoming so famous that people from outside Jerusalem, outside cities, outside villages, are bringing their sick into town and laying him on the road so that if he walks past, his power will emanate out of him and land on them and they'll be healed. This is what it looks like, what it could look like, what it can look like when we just give everything we have to God. You contrast that to Ananias, the chapter before, who had a lot of resources. The Bible says that he sold land that he had and brought a portion of the money. It doesn't say anywhere that Peter sold land. God probably didn't have two cents to rub together. So on the one hand, you got this guy with resources, perhaps education. He's married. Things are going well. He's a part of the church, but he's holding stuff back. And it ends up being incredibly destructive. And then over on this side, you've got Peter, who earlier on in the Gospels says to Jesus, I have left everything for you. Everything. And Jesus says, mate, don't you worry. You will get back a hundredfold. And here he is in this passage, walking around. Everybody is healed. I've only got really one question for you this morning. Where's the band? They're like all over the... Oh, you're back there, Abel. Wow. Mate, you have a baby and you just go sit in the back. It's like... And the rest of the band too. Why don't you guys get up and just give me some lovely music. Lovely music. I can't go any further without referencing Jean's moustache. Bonesaw is ready. It is, hey, oh, wow. It is glorious. And I'm not going to lie, it's been distracting as all heck up here. Having to look out at that thing. Well done, Gene. All right. You're good. That's all right. It's okay. People get stressed. Do you know what I love about this church is that it's just so chill. <laughs> Pastor says, hey, can we get the band up? Band's like, yeah, when I'm good and ready. <laughs> You're interrupting. <laughs> <laughs> yep. This is what I've been thinking about a lot this week reading about Peter, knowing where he came from, who he was, what he went through, what he learned, what he journeyed through, to then see him in this space, leading the church, 
I think that there are pastors in this room right now. You don't realize it. But you've got a church in you. There are people in this room right now that are called to leadership, that are called to make a difference in their community. Imagine living your life in such a way that people from outside your area, outside your towns are bringing people to you because they've heard about what you do and the difference that you make in the lives of the people around you. And, and I've just been thinking this week, what do I want? And so my question to you this morning is, what do you want? Do you want to be someone like Ananias and Sapphira who shows up to church, says all the right stuff, does all the right things, gives money, ticks all the boxes, but is holding something back for themselves? Or do you want to be like Peter who says, I've, I've, I'm all in. I've given everything, Jesus. I haven't held anything back. And Jesus said, I can use a man like that. I can use a woman like that. What do you want? It came out earlier in the in the service. It wasn't something that I had planned to like kind of get up. I don't think I've ever actually done that ever in this church. Got up and just given a prophetic word, you know, directly from God using the language as if he were talking. Normally I'd say, hey, I kind of feel like God's saying this, or I kind of feel like we could be doing that. Oh, this is the first time I've ever done that. And the word that sparked it, I was sitting in the front row, I was standing on the front row, and I just kept in the word abandoned. Will you abandon yourself to me? Peter is someone who said, yes, I will. The Bible is filled with examples like Ananias and Sapphira of people who said, no, I won't. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that he doesn't force us to do anything. He just puts the options in front of us. This morning, he's asked me to do it. You go back thousands of years, he was asking Moses to do it. Moses said, behold, I put before you life and death, blessing and cursing. He said, choose life. I love that about Moses. He's like, you've got two options. One's awesome and one's horrible. But just to be clear, you're supposed to choose the awesome one. Just to be clear. We always have a choice. To abandon everything to Him. Or to say, no, I, I think I'll... I think I'll keep it a little bit back. We love this idea that there's a middle ground. We love this idea that there's the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do, but then there's this middle ground where you're kind of in between and you're okay. Jesus doesn't make any space for the middle ground. He says, those who are not for me are against me. There's no middle ground there, is there? He doesn't say, well, there's those that are for me, those that are against me, and then there's people in the middle that are neither. He says, you're either for me or against me. He said, you're either, you're either gathering with me or you're scattering. That's what Jesus said. Again, no middle ground. Don't think that you can go, well, I'm not gathering, but I'm not scattering. I'm just kind of in between minding my own business. No, it doesn't exist. 
says in Revelation, you're either hot or you're cold. No middle ground. The enemy loves to convince us that there's a middle ground. Just stay where you are. Yeah, maybe you're not on fire. Maybe you're not surrendering everything, but, you know, it's not like you're a Satanist. Maybe you're not giving him everything, but you're giving him something, something that's better than nothing. But that's not how Jesus talks. Why don't you just close your eyes this morning? I'm just gonna, I think I'm just going to pray for you, and we're just going to leave it for a couple of minutes just for you and the Holy Spirit to have a wee conversation. Heavenly Father, I thank you for everyone that you have brought here this morning. And for those that are watching online, you can close your eyes as well. You're a part of us. Holy Spirit, just over the next few moments, I pray that you would impress upon each of us your heart for us. Lord, your will for us. God, I pray for your the light of truth to shine into our hearts. As David said, you search me, you know me, you know my innermost parts. God, I pray that you would just reveal to us this morning our innermost parts so that we can bring them into the light. I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes this morning to just, with your eyes closed, just focus in on Him and allow Him to highlight anything in your life that He wants to highlight for whatever reason. just while you're in that space, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit one more question. Just ask Him, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do?
fantastic. I was going to close with a, a song this morning. Uh, if anything that's been talked about this morning has brought things up in your life, uh, then what I want you to do is I want you to talk to the people that invited you to church this morning. If you're a guest with us this morning and you've just come in of your own volition, then you are more than welcome to come up and grab me and say, hey man, enjoy that or didn't enjoy that, as the case may be. Now, can you clarify this? Can you pray with me about this? In fact, we're just going to leave some space up the front here. If anybody wants prayer this morning for anything in particular, you just come and stand up the front and uh, someone will come and pray with you uh, as we're singing this song. Otherwise, have a great Sunday. Uh, we're going to sing this and then Abel will, Abel will say goodbye. Let's stand this morning. Come on.